Thank you, Ryan. Hey, it's so good to be here. <clears throat> awesome. Um, uh, um, I almost feel like, is this being recorded for, for something? For the world. Okay, okay. I'm going to use the mic then. Um, so, the acoustics are great in this place, aren't they? It's great to be here. It's good to um, be back here. I had such a nice time, God, in March. I didn't want to leave. It was so lovely and important. Um, so, Ryan, thanks for getting me up here and everyone. Um, and it's good to see friends, Arista. So my next book is coming out in a little bit. And, and Arista, the, the, the cover, is using one of Arista's paintings. It's a detail from one of Arista's paintings. <laughs> So we were just looking at it on the, on the computer in the dining room. Got in trouble. Can't do that. Um, so I'm going to read to you for like 35 minutes, I think. Um, and I think it's just going to be one, two, three, six, seven poems. A couple are long. I'll ask your permission when I get to them. This is called To the Fig Tree on Ninth and Christian. <clears throat> Tom, so there is a tree on Ninth and Christian in Philadelphia. Philadelphia. There's someone else. Where is it? Philadelphia. Um, Ninth and Christian. There's a big fig tree. Um, and God, there's so many fruit on this thing. Like in September when they start to harvest, it's ridiculous. They cut it back. They mess it up a little bit. But it's still tumbling through the city in my mind without once looking up the racket in the lug work probably rehearsing some stupid thing I said or did some crime or other the city they say is a lonely place until yes the sound of sweeping and a woman yes with a broom beneath which you are now to the canopy of a fig its arms pulling the September sun to it. And she has a hose too and so works hard rinsing and scrubbing the walk lest some poor sod slip on the silk of a fig and break his hip and not probably reach over to gobble up the perpetrator. The light catches the veins in her hands. When I ask about the tree, they flutter in the air and she says, take as much as you can, help me. So I load my pockets and mouth and she points to the stepladder against the wall to mean more, but I was without a sack, so my meager plunder would have to suffice. And an old woman whom gravity was pulling into the earth loosed one from a low-slung branch, and its eye wept like hers, which she dabbed with a kerchief as she cleaved the fig with what remained of her teeth. And soon there were eight or nine people gathered beneath the tree, looking into it like a constellation, pointing, do you see it? And I am tall. And so good for these things. And a bald man even told me so when I grabbed three or four for him, reaching into the giddy throngs of yellow jackets, sugar stone, which he only pointed to, smiling and rubbing his stomach. I mean, he was really rubbing his stomach, like there was a baby in there. It was hot, his head shone while he offered recipes to the group using words which I couldn't understand. And besides, I was a little tipsy on the dance of the velvety heart rolling in my mouth, pulling me down and down in the oldest countries of my body where I ate my first fig from the hand of a man who escaped his country by swimming through the night. 
and maybe never said more than five words to me at once, but gave me figs. And a man on his way to work hops twice to reach at last his fig, which he smiles at and calls baby. Come here, baby, he says, and blows a kiss to the tree, which everyone knows cannot grow this far north, being Mediterranean and favoring the rocky, sun-baked soils of Jordan and Sicily. But no one told the fig tree or the immigrants. There was a way the fig tree grows in groves. It wants, it seems, to hold us. Yes, I am anthropomorphizing, goddammit. I have twice in the last 30 seconds rubbed my sweaty forearm into someone else's sweaty shoulder, gleeful eating out of each other's hands on Christian Street in Philadelphia, a city like most which has murdered its own people. This is true. We are feeding each other from a tree at the corner of Christian and Ninth. Strangers, maybe never again. So this next, this next poem I'm going to read you is also a fig poem. I was on a fig tear, I think. Um, and it's called Sharing with the Ants. Sharing with the Ants. Everyone okay? Yeah. Sharing with the ants. A euphemism for some yank and gobble, no doubt. Some yummy tumble or other like monkey spanking or hiding the salami. Of course, your mind goes there, Lucy Goose that you are. Me too, me too. You have a favorite. Don't lie. I've heard you say them. Tending the hive, eating the melon. How's the tunnel traffic? Or as a massage therapist would say to my pal when his loneliness dragged him to a carpeted room in an apartment building in Chinatown where the small hands lathered his body, open the door. Naturally, sharing with the ant some entomologic metaphor, the chronic yoke in lovemaking, not only of body to body, but life to death, sharing with the ants. Or the specific act of dragging with the tongue one sweat-gilded body from the tibia's lookout along the rope bridge of the Achilles marching across the long plains of the calf and the meticulously unnamed zone behind the knee over the hamstring into use your imagination for Christ's sakes, but I will tell you it is dark there and sweet. Sharing with the ants. But actually that's not at all what I'm talking about. I mean, actually sharing with the ants, which I did September 21, a Friday in 2012, when by fluke or whim or prayer, I jostled the crotch-high fig tree whose few fruit had been scooped by our fat friends, the squirrels, but found shriveled and purple into an almost testicular papoose smuggled between, beneath the fronds of a few leaves, one stalwart fruit, which I immediately bit in half, only to find a small platoon of ants twisting in the meat. And when I spit out my bite, Another four or five lay sacked out, their spindly legs pedaling slow, nothing. One barely looking at me through a half-open eye, the way an infant might, curled into his mother's breast. 
And one stumbled dazed through my beard, tickling me as it tumbled head over feet, over head, over feet, back into the bite in my hand. The hooked sabers of their mandibles made soft, kneading the flesh. Their claws heavy and slow with fruit, their armor slathered plush as the seeds shone above the sounds of their work like water slapping appear at night. And not one to disrupt an orgy, I mostly gobbled around their nuzzle and slurp, careful not to chomp a reveler. And nibbling one last thread of flesh, noticed a dozy ant nibbling the same toward me, its antenna just caressing my face. Its pincers slowing at my lips, both of our mouths sugared and shining, both of us twirling beneath the fig's seeds, spinning like a newly discovered galaxy that's been there forever. <laughs> There's a couple kind of like bug fucking poems in this book. <laughs> That's a chat book. <laughs> Bug fucking and other poems. <laughs> um, <clears throat> yeah, I just had that experience. I, I have a pretty, like Ryan said, I have a I garden and like to talk about gardening. And I have a bunch of fruit trees. And I've been away for a year. And I got back, and my Asian pears had all these fruit on them. And they were getting a little bit gone. Like they're a little. The ants were getting to him. And so, you know, the, one of the first things I did was get the, the pears and like, you know, they had the little holes in them, they're starting to rot and the ants were getting in there and just like start eating around the ants so I can get as much of the, sharing with the ants. That's what it is. It's called To My Best Friend's Big Sister. Um, I reference one thing that I think everyone here is gonna know, which is Rob Bass and DJ Easy Rock. Um, that's, that's all you need to know. To my best friend's big sister. One never knows, does one, how one comes to be standing most ways to naked in front of one's pal's big sister, who has, simply by telling me to, gotten me to shed all but the scantest flap of fabric and twirl before her like a rotisserie chicken. And she observes and offers thoughtful critique of my just pubescent physique, which is not a thing to behold. What with my damp trunks clinging to my damp crotch, and proportion and grace are words the definition of which I don't yet know, nor did I ask the many-skirted scientist sitting open-legged and now shoeless on my mom's couch. Though it may have been just this morning while chucking papers, I heard through the Rob bass and DJ Easy rock pulsing my Walkman, a morning dove struggling, snared in the downspout's mouth. And without lowering the volume or missing a verse, I crinkled the rusted aluminum trap enough that with a little wriggle, it was free. And did not at once wobble to some power line, but sat on my hand and looked at me for at least one verse of It Takes Two, sort of bobbing its head and cooing once or twice before flopping off 
But that seems very long ago now as I pirouette my hairless and shivering warble of acne and pudge, burning a hole in the rug as Big Sis tosses off Greek and Latin words like pectorals and gluteus maximus, standing to show me what she means with her hands on my love handles. And now I can see myself trying to add some gaudy flourish to this memory to make of it a fantasy, which is why I linger hoping to misrecall the child me, make of me someone I wasn't, make of this experience the beginning of a new life, gilded doors kicked open, blaring trombones, a full beard, Isaac Hayes singing in the background, and me thundering forth on the wild steed of emergent manhood. But I think this child was not that child. Obscuring as he was his breasts, by tucking his hands into his armpits. And having never even made love to himself, yet was not really much of a candidate for anything besides the chill of a minor shame that he would forget for 15 years. One of what would prove to be many such shames stitched together like a quilt with all its just legible patterning, which could be a thing heavy and warm to be buried in or instead might be held up to the light where we see the threads barely holding, so human and frail, so beautiful and sad and small from this remove. Thank you. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> Thank you very much, that's sweet. The clap dynamic is always tricky with poetry readings. It is. It is. I know. I know. Some places we clap after every poem, and some places we don't. I know. I know. So this is a long poem, and it's called Spoon, and it's for um, a friend named Don Belton. Um, does anyone know that name? Don Belton. He's a writer. Um, wrote a novel, Almost Midnight, and edited a collection of essays, and wrote many beautiful essays. And um, um, Anyway, he was a friend in Bloomington, and just a lovely man, and um, was a kind of mentor to me, this um, kind of a generation above me, an African-American dude who had like, you know, was kind of provided things that, you know, say my father, had my father been a different kind of person, would have done, and he was talking, and. I love this story. I'm going to tell this story. One time, Don, so he was, <clears throat> he was, I guess, when 13 or 14 and after the riots in Newark. And, you know, so he would reference like pre riots, post riots, you know, and that kind of um, history. And he and his buddy had started a group called Interested Negroes. Um, and he's like, you know, we'd go to like, you know, mock UN and we'd like do, you know, brainy stuff. And I thought that was so funny. And I said, I N, is that, were you being ironic? And he said, no, I was being serious, Ross, so you could be ironic. Mm. Spoon. Who sits like this on the kitchen floor at two in the morning, turning over and over? the small, silent body in his hands, with his eyes closed, fingering the ornate 
tendrils of ivy cast delicately into the spoon that came home with me eight months ago from a potluck next door during which the birthday boy so lush on smoke and drink and cake made like a baby and slept on the floor with his thumb in his mouth until he stumbled through my garden to my house the next morning where I was frying up stovetop sweet potato biscuits and making himself at home as was his way after sampling one of my bricks told me I could add some baking powder to his and could I put on some coffee and turn up the Nina Simone and rub maybe his feet <laughs> which I did the baking powder stirring it in and I like to think unlikely though it is those were the finest biscuits Don ever ate for there was organic coconut oil and syrup bought from a hollering man at the market who wears a rainbow cap and dances to disguise his sorrow. And it might be a ridiculous wish, but the sweet potatoes came from a colony just beyond my back door, smothering with their vines the grass and doing their part to make my yard look ragged and wild to untrained eyes. The kale and chard so rampant, some stalks unbeknownst drooped into the straw mulch, and the cherry tomatoes shone, shone like ornaments on a drunken Christmas tree, and the blackberry vines gnawed through their rusty half-assed trellis this in Indiana where I am really not from where for years Negroes weren't even allowed entry and where the rest stop graffiti might confirm the endurance of such sentiments and when I worried about this to Don on a cool September evening worried it might look Don in his kindness abundant and floral knowing my anxiety before I stated it having been around having gone antiquing in Martinsville a few weeks back and been addressed most unkindly by a passing truck or two trucks likely adorned with the stars and bars, knowing the typhoon's race makes our minds do, twirling with one hand a dreadlock and patting my back with the other asked, smiling sadly and knowingly, niggerish, before saying it looks beautiful and returning to some rumination on the garden boy of his dreams, whose shorts were very short and stomach taut and oily enough to see his reflection in. Don told me this as we walked arm in arm through our small neighborhood, which he asked me if he could do. Is this okay? He asked, knowing mostly how dense and sharp the dumb fear of mostly straight boys can be. Oh, Don, walking arm in arm shoulder to shoulder, his hand almost patting my forearm, resting there down the small alley next to the graveyard, fall beginning to shudder into the leaves. And Don once dreamt he was in that graveyard next to his house on 4th, where in real life we sang Diana Ross is missing you while decorating his kitchen, where I once asked to borrow a signed Jamaica Kincaid novel at which Don made one sound by sucking his teeth that indicated I was both impossibly stupid and a little bit cute. <laughs> and in the dream, in the graveyard where century-old oak trees look like giants trudging into a stiff wind and some gravestones are old enough to be illegible and lean back as though consulting the sun, Don dreamt he was floating into the air, which pleasant at first became terrifying, he told me, beginning to cry just a little. 
as the world beneath him grew smaller and smaller, his house becoming a toy, the trees huge limbs like the arms now of small people calling him down, but he couldn't stop going higher, he said, crying, just a little. And I've inserted myself two or three times into the dream, imagined a rope cinched to his waist by which Don might be tethered to this world, snatching it as it whips, uncoiling through the grass at my feet and gripping it with all my strength until it almost hauls me up and takes the skin of my palms with it, twisting slowly into the sky at which I become like the trees here on earth shouting, come back, come back running some blocks, looking into the sky, first down forth, but as the wind sends him this way and that, I too veer through backyards, hopping a fence or two, not wanting to take my eyes from him, not wanting to lose him as he sails in and out of the low clouds, looking down with his sad eyes, just as he did when he said at breakfast, I'm a survivor. I survived this 53-year-old gay black man to which we did a little dance, listing the myriad bullets he dodged, swirling the biscuits in their oily syrup, Don occasionally poking his fork into the air for emphasis, laughing and sipping coffee and shaking our heads like we couldn't believe it. And having survived, Don wanted a child to love, and we made plans that I might make the baby with my sweetie and he could be the real dad reading and cooking and worrying while I played in the garden and my sweetheart made the dough, which maybe would have worked, though Don never once cleaned a dish. And when I told him to put his goddamn plate in the sink, he writhed in his seat and called me bitch before plopping it in, returning to his Beyonce tune about survival, while he scooped and slurped the remaining batter with this spoon in my hands into which I stare, seeing none of this. I swore when I got into this poem, I would convert this sorrow into some kind of honey with the little musics I can sometime make with these scribbled artifacts of our desolation. I can't even make a metaphor of my reflection upside down and barely visible in the spoon. I wish one single thing made sense. To which I say, oh, get over yourself. That's not the point. After Don was killed, I dreamt of him, hugging him and saying, you have to go now. Fixing his scarf and pulling his wool overcoat snug, weeping and tugging down his furry Russian cap to protect his ears, kissing his eyes and cheeks again and again. You have to go cinching his coat tight by the lapels for which Don peered at me again with those sad eyes, or through me, or into me, the way my dead do sometimes, looking straight into their homes, which hopefully have flowers in a vase on a big wooden table and a comfortable chair or two, and huge windows through which light pours to wash clean and make a touch less awful what forever otherwise will hurt. Thank you. Thank you. I'll read you two more poems.
It's called burial. And do you all know, some of you know, like, the old traditions of like putting a placenta with a tree where you bury a tree, where you plant a tree, and it, you know, the nutrients feed the tree, it's true. Or you put a fish in with the corn or whatever. <clears throat> I reference that. It's called burial. You're right. You're right, the fertilizer's good. It wasn't a gang of dullards came up with chucking a fish in the planting hole or some midwife got lucky with the placenta. Oh, I'll plant a tree here. And a sudden flush of quince and jam enough for months. Yes, the magic dust our bodies become cast spells on the roots about which someone, not me, could tell you the chemical processes. But it's just magic to me. Which is why a couple springs ago, when first putting in my two bare root plum trees out back, I took the jar which has become my father's house, and lonely for him and hoping to coax him back for my mother as much as me, poured some of him in the planting holes. And he dove in, glad for the robust air, saddling a slight gust into my nose and mouth, chuckling as I coughed. But mostly, he disappeared into the minor yawns in the earth, into which I placed the trees, splaying wide their roots, casting the gray dust of my old man evenly throughout the hole, replacing then the clods of dense Indiana soil until the roots and my father were buried, watering it all in with one hand while holding the tree with the other straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy. straight as the flag to the nation of simple joy, of which my father is now a naturalized citizen, waving the flag from his subterranean lair. The roots curled around him like shawls or jungle gyms, like hookahs or the arms of ancestors, before breaststroking into the xylem, riding the elevator up through the cambium and into the leaves where, when you put your ear close enough, you can hear him whisper, good morning where if you close your eyes and push your face, you can feel his stubbly jowls. And good Lord, this year he was giddy at the first real fruit set and nestled into the 30 or 40 plums in the two trees, peering out from the sweet meat with his hands pressed against the purple skin like cathedral glass. And imagine his joy as the sun wizarded forth those abundant sugars and I plodded barefoot and prayerful at the first ripe plum swell and blush, almost weepy, conjuring some surely ponderous verse to convey this bottomless grace. You know, oh father, oh father kind of stuff. Hundreds of hot air balloons filling the sky in my chest replacing his intubated body, listing like a boat keel side up, replacing the steady stream of water from the one eye, which his brother wiped before removing the tube, keeping his hand on the forehead until the last wind in his body wandered off, while my brother wailed like an animal. And my mother said, weeping, it's okay, it's okay, you can go, honey. At all of which my father guffawed by kicking from the first bite buckets of juice down my chin, staining one of my two button-down shirts, the salmon-colored silk one, hollering, there's more of that, almost dancing now in the plum, 
in the tree, the way he did as a person, bent over and biting his lip and chucking the one hip out, then the other, with his elbows cocked and fists loosely made and eyes closed and mouth made trumpet when he knew he could make you happy just by being a little silly and sweet. All right, I'm going to read you one more poem. Thank you. All right, is everyone all right? This is a little bit long, but um, not too long. You know, it's like two hours long, don't worry. <laughs> I reference a couple things. One is this uh, community orchard I work on in Bloomington, Indiana. And it's just like this amazing project. We all like, you know, got together and we do it and it's publicly owned and it's all volunteer run and, you know, like thousands of people have come through it and, you know, it's just this amazing project. So I reference that in this poem. Um, and I reference 10,000 other things I'm not going to tell you about until you get to <laughs> Catalog of Unabashed Gratitude. <clears throat> My buddy was saying what the title of my book was the other day, and he, was, he called it Cadillac of Unabashed Gratitude. I know, that's a pretty good title. That's a good title, too. Friends, friends, will you bear with me today? For I have awakened from a dream in which a robin made with its shabby wings a kind of veil behind which it shimmied and stomped something from the south of Spain, its breast a flare, looking me dead in the eye from the branch that grew into my window, coochie cooing my chin, the bird shuffling its little talons left then right while the leaves bristled against the plaster wall, two of them drifting onto my blanket while the bird opened and closed its wings like a matador giving up on murder, jutting its beak, turning a circle and flashing again the ruddy bombast of its breast by which I knew upon waking it was telling me in no uncertain terms to bellow forth the tubas and sousaphones, the whole rusty brass band of gratitude not quite dormant in my belly. It said so in a human voice, bellow forth! And who among us could ignore such odd and precise counsel? Hear ye, hear ye, I am here to holler that I have hauled tons, by which I don't mean lots, I mean tons of cow shit, and stood ankle deep in swales of maggots swirling the spent beer grains the brewery man was good enough to dump off holding his nose, for they smell very bad. They'll make the compost writhe, giddy, and lick its lips, twirling dung with my pitchfork again and again with hundreds and hundreds of other people. We dreamt an orchard this way, furrowing our brows and hauling our wheelbarrows and sweating through our shirts. And two years later, later there was a party at which trees were sunk into the well-fed earth. One of which, a Liberty Apple, after being watered in, was tamped by a baby barefoot with a bow hanging in her hair, biting her lip in her joyous work. And friends, this is the realest place I know. You could ride your bike there, or roller skate, or catch the bus. There is a fence and a gate twisted by hand. There is a fig tree taller than you in Indiana. It will make you gasp. It might make you want to stay alive even. Thank you. 
And thank you for not taking the pow my pal when the engine of his mind dragged him to swig fistfuls of Xanax and a bottle or two of booze. And thank you for taking my father a few years after his own father went down. Thank you. Mercy. Mercy, thank you for not smoking meth with your mother. Oh, thank you. Thank you for leaving and for coming back. And thank you for what inside my friend's love bursts like a throng of roadside goldenrod gleaming into the world, likely hauling a shovel with her like one named Ara Lee ought. That's my friend's new little baby, Ara Lee. With hands big as a horse's, and who, like one named Airily Ought, will laugh time to time till the juice runs from her nose. Oh, thank you the way a small thing's wail makes the milk, or what once was milk in us, gather into horses huckle-buckling across a field. And thank you, friends, when last spring the hyacinth bells rang and the crocuses flaunted their upturned skirts and a quiet roved the beehive, which when I entered were snugged two or three dead fist-sized clutches of bees between the frames, almost clinging to one another, this one's tiny head pushed into another's tiny wing, one's forelegs resting on another's face, the translucent paper of their wings fluttering beneath my breath, and when a few dropped to the frames beneath, honey, and after falling down to cry, everything's glacial shine. And thank you, too. And thanks for the corduroy couch I have put you on. Put your feet up. Here's a light blanket, a pillow, dear one, for I can feel this is going to be long. I can't stop my gratitude, which includes, dear reader, dear listener, you, for staying here with me, for moving your lips just so as I speak. Here's a cup of tea. I've spooned honey into it. And thank you, the tiny bee's shadow perusing these words as I write them, and the way my love talks quietly when in the hive, so quietly, in fact, you cannot hear her, but only notice barely her lips moving in conversation. Thank you what does not scare her in me, but makes her reach my way. Thank you the love she is, which hurts sometimes. And the time she misremembered elephants in one of my poems, which, oh, here they come garlanded with morning glory and wisteria blooms, trombones all the way down to the river. Thank you the quiet in which the river bends around the elephant's solemn trunk, polishing stones floating on its gentle back, the flock of geese flying overhead. And to the quick and gentle flocking of men, to the old lady falling down on the corner of Fairmount and 18th holding patiently with the softest parts of their hands her cane and purple hat, gathering for her the contents of her purse and touching her shoulder and elbow. Thank you, the cockeyed court on which, in a half court, three on three, we old heads made of some runny-nosed kids a shambles. <laughs> and the 61-year-old, after flipping a reverse layup off a backdoor cut from my no-look pass to seal the game, ripped off his shirt and threw punches at the gods and hollered at the kids to admire the pacemaker's scar grinning across his chest. <laughs> 
Thank you, the glad accordion's wheeze in the chest. Thank you, the bagpipes. Thank you to the woman barefoot in a gaudy dress for stopping her car in the middle of the road and the tractor trailer behind her and the van behind it whisking a turtle off the road. Thank you, God of gaudy. Thank you, Paisley Panties. Thank you, the organ up my dress. Thank you, the sheer dress you wore kneeling in my dream at the creek's edge and the light swimming through it. The coy kissing halos into the glassy air. The room in my mind with the blinds drawn where we nearly injure each other. Crawling into the shawl of the other's body. Thank you when I just say it plain. Fuck each other dumb. And you, again, you, for the true kindness it has been for you to remain awake, or mostly awake, with me like this, nodding time to time and making that noise, which I take to mean, yes, or I understand, or please, go on, but not too long, or why are you spitting so much, or easy, tiger, hands yourself. I'm excitable. I'm sorry. I'm grateful. I just want us to be friends now forever. Take this bowl of blackberries from the garden. The sun has made them warm. I picked them just for you. I promise I will try to stay on my side of the couch. And thank you, the baggie of dreadlocks I found in a drawer while washing and folding the clothes of our murdered friend. The photo in which his arms slung around the sign to the trail of silences. Thank you, the way before he died, he held his hands open to us for coming back in a waft of incense or in the shape of a boy in another city looking from between his mother's legs or disappearing into the stacks after brushing by, for moseying back in dreams where Seeing us lost and scared, he put his hand on our shoulders and pointed us to the temple across town. And thank you to the man all night long hosing a mist on his early bloomed peach trees so that the hard frost not waste the crop, the ice in his beards and the ghosts lifting from him when the warming sun told him sleep now. Thank you, the ancestor who loved you before she knew you by smuggling seeds into her braid for the long journey. Who loved you before he knew you by putting a walnut tree in the ground. Who loved you before she knew you by not slaughtering the land. Thank you, who did not bulldoze the ancient grove of dates and olives. Who sailed his keys into the ocean and walked softly home. Who did not fire. Who did not plunge the head into the toilet. Who said, stop, don't do that. Who lifted some broken someone up. Who volunteered. The way a plant birthed of the reseeding plant is called a volunteer. Like the plum tree that marched beside the raised bed in my garden. Like the arugula that marched itself between the blueberries. Nary a bayonet. Nary an army. Nary a nation. Which usage of the word volunteer familiar to gardeners the wide world made my pal shout, oh, and dance and plunge his knuckles into the lush soil before gobbling two strawberries and digging a song from his guitar made of wood from a tree someone planted. Thank you. Thank you, Zinnia 
and gooseberry, rudbeckia, and pawpaw, ashmead's kernel, coxcomb, and scarlet runner, feverfew, and lemon balm. Thank you, knitbone, and sweetgrass, and sunchoke, and false indigo, whose petals stammered apart by bumblebees. Good Lord, please give me a minute. And Moonglow, and Catkin, and Crookneck, and Painted Tongue, and Seed Pod, and Johnny Jump Up. Thank you, what in us rackets glad, what glad rackets us. And thank you to this knuckle-headed heart, this pelican heart, this gap-toothed heart, flinging open its gaudy maw to the sky. Oh, clumsy, oh, bumblefucked, oh, giddy, oh, dumbstruck, oh, rickshaw, oh, goat twisting its head at me from my peach tree's highest branch, balanced and possibly gobbling the last fruit, its tongue working like an engine, a lone sweet drop tumbling by some miracle into my mouth like the smell of someone I've loved, heart like an elephant screaming at the bones of its dead, heart like the lady on the bus dressed head to toe in gold, the sun shivering her shiny boots, singing Erica Badu to herself, leaning her head against the window. And thank you the way my father one time came back in a dream by plucking the two cables beneath my chin like a bass fiddle strings and played me until I woke singing, no kidding, singing, smiling, thank you. Thank you, stumbling into the garden where the Juneberry's flowers had burst open like the bells of French horns, the lily my mother and I planted oozed into the air, the bazillion ants labored in their earthen workshops below, the collared greens waved in the wind like the sails of ships, and the wasps swam in the mint bloom's viscous swill, and you, again you, for hanging tight, dear friend, I know I can be long-winded sometimes. I want so badly to rub the sponge of gratitude over every last thing, including you, which, yes, awkward. <clears throat> the suds in your ear and armpit, the little sparkling gems slipping into your eye. Soon it will be over which is precisely what the child in my dream said, holding my hand, pointing at the roiling sea in the sky, hurtling our way like so many buffalo who said, it's much worse than we think. And sooner, to whom I said, no duh, child in my dreams. What do you think this singing and shuddering is? What this screaming and reaching and dancing and crying is other than loving what every second goes away? Goodbye, I mean to say. And thank you, every day. Thank you.